Welcome to the Herd Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the clitoris. An article in the New York Times published in October of 2022 highlighted a particularly disturbing incident involving a vaginal procedure that inadvertently involved the clitoris. Now, we're going to refrain from describing the incident here due to graphic content. But in the aftermath, the patient lost the ability to orgasm. She spent months and years going from doctor to doctor for an explanation and was told this was everything from a, quote, trauma reaction to perimenopause. When she tried to explain that the problem was not the vagina, but the clitoris, she was seemingly dismissed, ignored, or thought of as crazy. Why would doctors not acknowledge the clitoris? What do we even know about conditions that affect the clitoris? Why is the clitoris so completely ignored? After all, half of the world's population has one. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Doctors don't routinely ask women if they can orgasm, let alone how they orgasm. Nor is the clitoral exam part of the yearly physical. Who is responsible for clitoral pathology and what are the things that can go wrong? This is a quote by our special guest today, Dr. Rachel Rubin. Dr. Rubin is a board-certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist, an intimate medicine specialist and assistant clinical professor at the Department of Urology at Georgetown University. Dr. Rachel Rubin is a urologic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of sexual dysfunction in both men and women. Dr. Rubin completed a fellowship in male and female sexual dysfunction and prosthetic urology in San Diego. She completed an internship in general surgery and residency in urology at Georgetown University Hospital, and she holds a medical degree and bachelor's degree, graduating summa cum laude from Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Her expertise lies in pelvic pain, low libido, sexual arousal disorders, urinary incontinence, and menopause care. She also explores some of the gaps that still exist in our understanding of the clitoris. She has participated in several clinical research trials and has also presented at national and international conferences, including the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, and the American Urologic Association. Dr. Rubin has been featured on and quoted in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, and the Washington Post. She can be found on Instagram at Dr. Rachel Rubin and also her website, www.dr.com. RachelRubinMD.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Dr. Rubin. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're so excited for this talk because uh, a little bit of a deviation from what we normally talk about in that we, a topic that we don't talk about enough. So let's just simply start with what is the clitoris for our audience? Where is it located? What does it do? Yeah. So we love talking about sex, but we don't really ever talk about sex or pleasure or 
it's very strange, the society that we live in, but you know, the clitoris is a penis, right? So they're the same. We all start out exactly the same way and you develop either a clitoris and a vulva or a penis and scrotum and that sort of thing. And so it's all the same body parts. They're just kind of put in a different order in a different way and different sizes. So the clitoris is essentially the same tissue, the same parts that a penis has. It's just that it would be like the, just the tip of the head of the penis sort of being visible and the rest of it all being kind of inside your body. And the penis, you know, half of it's outside the body and half of it's inside the body. We just don't think of the internal part of it, but all men are sitting on their penises when they sit in a seat, just like all women are sitting on their clitorises when they're sitting, you know, on a bicycle seat and it goes all the way down to your butt bones. So the clitoris has a body and it has long legs that go all the way down to your butt bones. And it's very entwined with sort of the urethra and the labia majora. And it is erectile tissue that gets big and hard and arouses, right? It's erection tissue. And when it is relaxed, it it, it grows uh, and um, it can lead to orgasm, just like a penis, if stimulated enough, can lead to this reflex that's a pleasurable orgasm. A clitoris as well, for many women, will lead to a, an orgasmic feeling. So that's the clitoris. So now that we've defined the very basics of the clitoris, let's talk a little bit about why we don't ever talk about it. So, you know, male sexual dysfunction has been researched quite a bit. And just for our audience, there are over 30,000 research studies, but less than half on female sexual dysfunction or female pelvic pain. And, you know, in fact, in our, actually in our season one, episode one of this podcast is titled Hysterical Women, which talks a lot about the lack of research on conditions that affect women. And rarely does a study ever mention the clitoris. Like, I don't, I don't remember ever learning anything about the clitoris in medical school. It's because everything else is more important. Literally everything else is more important. And there's only so much time, only so much research dollars, and only so many things that we can care about as a society. And the clitoris has been totally ignored because we don't penetrate with or pee through our clitorises. It doesn't serve a function to our society. Women will have sex, whether their clitorises lead to orgasm or not. They will still get pregnant. They will still reproduce. It has been totally in like not even cared about at any level because it doesn't matter, which is so infuriating because of course it matters. And of course it's important. And of course it serves a biological function and that's all ridiculous. It's just, it's been totally ignored. You know, I, I agree with that. I think that's especially true because when someone thinks about a male orgasm, it's basically like, okay, well, a male orgasm leads to children possibly. So it's like, you have to continue that versus a female orgasm doesn't serve any purpose. Women can still have children without having an orgasm. So it's sort of looked at as like an extraneous thing we don't need to worry about. Yeah, but evolutionarily, right? Like if women want sex and get pleasure from sex and have more arousal and more lubrication, like all, I'm sure orgasm has a evolutionary benefit because, you know, you, you have to want to do the act to make the babies. Uh, so, so of course there's likely a lot of, of good. Um, and uh, we, we know from some research, right, that, that masturbation and orgasm lead to stress reduction and anxiety reduction and improvement in quality of life and improvement in relationships. And I will tell you, I've been doing sexual medicine for a long time now. And the couples that continue to have an awesome sexual relationship have without a doubt always been couples where everybody has pleasure and happiness and joy, which often equates to orgasm, not always, but almost always that they're, that everyone is getting something out of it. It is not just a one-sided pleasure activity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
you know, I want to touch a little bit about the healthcare industry. We kind of started talking about how we don't study this enough, but, you know, just in terms of the way healthcare is set up, from what I've read, like reimbursement for urology procedures um, on male patients is higher than that of gynecological procedures for female patients. And like the male erectile dysfunction industry is booming. I think Viagra has brought in billions on billions of dollars to Pfizer. So there's obviously a huge discrepancy between a focus on male and female pressure and including reimbursements. Why do you think that is? It's because it doesn't matter. It doesn't serve a purpose and it hasn't been demanded. It doesn't make people money. Um, you know, it, it's at every level. It's a problem. Let's go. You're in New York City. Let's give you an example. The New York City subway system is filled with advertisements for erection medications, right? The Romans, the hymns, the hers, it's all packed all over the subway system. When a company called Dame wanted to put a big ad about female vibrators, a very tasteful ad, they were told by the New York City subway system that that was disgusting, that was inappropriate, and they were not allowed to put an ad about uh, the orgasm gap, about the fact that women don't orgasm as much as men. And they went to, they did a lawsuit because it was like, you have got to be kidding me. And it happens over and over again, right? The Facebook ads, the Instagram, you can put all you want about, you know, erections and all of these things. But if you put anything about the pelvic floor, oh my goodness, that gets shut down quickly. To your point, uh, medical procedures, right? If you do a vasectomy, which um, is a pretty easy office-based procedure, you get paid more money than if you tie a woman's tubes, which is a very invasive procedure where you have to go in her intra-abdominal cavity. And so historically, GYN is incredibly misogynistic. The fact that a gynecologist is supposed to do everything that has to do with a woman, it's like there's all these doctors, but then the woman's doctor is the gynecologist, right? It's like the the we are all supposed to be doctors for men and then like the women are like the the small minority that we don't know that much about, that they're just like confusing. We just don't we don't know what to do. And it's 50% of the gosh darn population. That's I mean I actually didn't know about the the subway ads with this. That's really, I mean, I guess it's shocking, but not so shocking to to hear. It's one of those things where you're surprised because you're like, well, at this point now it's 2023, but then it's also not so shocking to hear just based off of the entire history of the way research on women in general is treated and especially a topic of the clitoris or female orgasm. So speaking of research, since this is something that, you know, you have studied a lot, look into a lot. What does the research on the clitoris say? What discoveries have we made so far? You know, the clitoris, it's its not that we don't know anything about it. It's that we don't know enough about it. And there's a lot of things we don't know about the penis that I wish we knew more about too. So I can't say that we, we figured everything out about sexual function. In general, sexual uh, health is very voodoo. It's its very um, not as physiologically understood as we want it to be. Sort of the mechanisms of orgasm, the, you know, arousal. Um, we're a little bit better off, you know, with men than we are with women. And so we are still doing cadaver studies. Studies, uh, not you know, there are people still doing cadaver studies to really look at the nerves of the clitoris, to look how big the nerves are, the distribution, how they function. 
the pudendal nerve, which you as a pain doctor are very familiar with, it's not the whole story. I actually think we have it wrong because the pudendal nerve is a sensory and motor nerve, but it's not an autonomic nerve as far as we know, or it's not completely an autonomic nerve as far as we know. And for anyone listening, autonomic nerves are sort of the ones, the fight or flight, the ones we don't necessarily have full control over. So think arousal. So for the penis, it's not just a pudendal nerve story. It's cavernosal nerves that come, you know, through the abdominal cavity and and go next to the prostate. And that's what causes a penile erection. So why would it not cause a clitoral erection as well? And so when you have patients who come in with muted orgasm or delayed orgasm or pain with orgasm, pain with arousal, it's unlikely that a pudendal nerve block is the right answer or that a pudendal nerve procedure is the right answer. It is likely more of a problem, more centralized either in their spinal cord or that they've had some surgery, intra-abdominal surgery that may have damaged some nerve endings. And so we haven't fully gotten doctors to understand even the nerve distribution to the sexual organs, including the clitoris, the vulva. I just reviewed a paper of the um, nerves of the vulvar vestibule, never been written about before, right? It, is it all the perineal branch of the pudendal nerve? Is there some other, you know, autonomic nerve distribution? Nobody knows. And uh, it was a cadaver study. So that's where we are in 2023, which is incredibly depressing that we're still doing, you know, needing to do cadaver studies to even understand what nerves go here. So when you have a general uh, urologist or gynecologist doing surgeries, doing procedures, they don't even know this anatomy. So how can they properly counsel a patient, right? How can they say, oh, this procedure is totally safe or there is no problems? First of all, we're not asking women, well, how do you enjoy pleasure? Because there are women who really enjoy, you know, anterior vaginal wall stimulation, that quote unquote G-spot, which is prostate tissue. There are women who enjoy cervical stimulation where they feel, I had a woman just this week who said, gosh, Dr. Rubin, after my, you know, hysterectomy, it was like the circuitry between my clitoris and my whole body was cut off. And I said, well, that makes sense, right? Because the cervix is innervated by the vagus nerve as well as, you know, other nerves as well. It's triply innervated. So when they cut that off, that whole body orgasmic feeling may be different. Is it the same for any, you know, she said, well, now I just feel it, you know, sort of in my lower half in my clitoris. I said, well, that's probably how most people, you know, feel their orgasm, but everyone's different. And if we don't ask the questions and we're so awkward and we avoid asking these uncomfortable questions, we may hurt people unintentionally by severing certain body parts or certain nerves. So that's kind of the there's a lot of work to be done just in the basic anatomy, certainly in the physiology. And then when things go wrong, right, the pathology. So I do the research on clitoral adhesions, which are actually quite common. Um, we do, you know, work on, um, you know, um, lichen sclerosis. There's a lot of work that's been done on, on different skin conditions that can affect the clitoris. Um, but there's all sorts of bad things. If a bad thing can happen to a penis, it can happen to a clitoris. It's just that we know a lot more about the bad things that happen to the penis. I agree with that. I mean, going back to earlier when you talked about the pedental nerve and innervation of the clitoris, I mean, I think, you know, you're right because oftentimes for clitoral pain, um, I will do a ganglion impar block, which is a sympathetic block because that's a lot of times where I feel like the pain is really stemming from and it's not the pedental nerve. And sometimes it is, but usually when they have more of a distribution like vagina, perineum, like all of that, then I aim more for pedendal. But otherwise, I kind of go more towards ganglion empire because that and I always tell patients, I'm like, look, 
this might be more of a trial and error to figure out what's what's causing this pain because everything in the pelvis is like a bowl and it's all sort of connects at the bottom in a bowl and a lot of these fibers intersect and it can be hard to figure out which ones are causing it. And we need detectives like you who think outside the box and who can say, wait a minute, what are the different you know things we can try? Where else is this coming from? What else is happening here? There was just an amazing paper published, and I'll send it to you on how um, annular tears and bulging discs, even you know higher up, L four, L five, L five S one, you know, Tarlov cysts that can cause really significant sexual pathologies. And so it was a paper that looked at um, minimally invasive spine surgery, and eighty percent of the patients with horrible persistent genital arousal disorder noticed benefit. And so. So I'm so happy to meet you um, because we need more pain doctors who understand this relationship because as urologists and gynecologists, nobody teaches us about the spine. Nobody teaches us the fact that I even said the words annular tear are a miracle because I barely know, understand and know what that is, right? This is your stuff. And so we have to get more pain doctors, more orthopedic doctors, more neurosurgeons actually interested in this kind of work. But because vagina and clitoris words make people uncomfortable, comfortable, nobody wants to do it. And it's so frustrating, as you know. I actually had a patient with clitoral perineal pain. And I, you know, always make sure there's some sort of imaging in there, not necessarily looking for like, just like a, some sort of MRI of the pelvis, just to make sure there's nothing crazy going on there. And of course, there was a massive Tarlov cyst, which for our audience is basically the best way to put it is it's, it's just a cyst, it's a cyst, but it's at the level of your tailbone. And it can compress a lot of things and cause a lot of pain that can be anywhere from sort of tailbone pain all the way to all over the pelvis pain. And, and yet most radiologists won't even call it because they'll say it's an incidental finding and, and, you, and they won't even see it. And there are only a handful of surgeons in the country who will operate on Tarlov cysts, right? And that's what's so crazy is, yes. is finding a specialist who will actually do this is, is it's wild. So I usually write um, in the imaging order, like assess for Tarlov cysts, or if I'm getting a neurogram, I'm like assess for pudendal nerve entrapment. Like I like write specifically what I'm looking for so that I can make sure that they're covering it because I mean, it's not, it's not on purpose, but it's just something that they don't normally see a lot or have a lot of experience with. And then unless you point it out as like, look for this, they don't tend to. And the other thing we need to do more of is get more uh, pain doctors who are comfortable examining vulvas because they think that they can only examine the, you know, external, the back, the hips, the, you know, and they don't want to do a vulvar exam, but it would be like having a knife in your thumb and the doctor never looking at your thumb, but doing a, a like a, you know, a block in your arm or something like that, or telling you gabapentin is the right answer. And that's the frustration that I have with some of, you know, a local pain docs that I work with is I ask the patients, I say, I say, oh, they did a pudendal nerve block. Well, they use this fancy imaging and they did this thing and they did this guide. I said, well, did they actually touch the spot? Did they examine you? No one, no one looked at my genitals, even my male patients too, right? Nobody looked at my genitals. And you're like, why are these private parts to doctors, right? Why are we not looking and why is not everyone doing a more standard exam? I mean, nobody examines the vulva except for a handful of us because nobody taught us how to do it. And that's the really frustration is how can we get more, um, 
unified in our just because you know how to examine backs and hips and all these things way better than I do way better. Um, And then we have to share that knowledge and really, you know, expand because the pelvis should be everyone collaborating on and instead it becomes nobody works together and everyone is siloed. Right. Absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned clitoral adhesions. Can you talk a little bit about that, your research on it and what you've been finding? Absolutely. So a penis that is uncircumcised, right, has a foreskin that um, can get stuck to the head of the penis. It's called phimosis. Um, And it can be really stuck or it can be a little bit stuck. And what happens is the penis will develop smegma, oils and skin cells that can kind of build up underneath the, the, the hood of the penis. And so boys are taught who have foreskins to pull back their hood and clean out the the junk from underneath and just so you can keep it clean so that it doesn't all stick together. Well, what we found in our research in 2017 was that about 23% of all women have some element of the hood being stuck to the glands or the head of the clitoris, some element of clitoral adhesions or clitoral phimosis, you could call it. That was it. That was the paper. It was an incidence of 23%, which was similar to some prior research that had been done, very similar numbers. And so we then did a study um, last year. I had a group of medical students who um, asked all the patients who I had done a procedure on where I stretch open the clitoral hood to get rid of the adhesions. We don't cut them. We don't sew them. It's not mutilation. We're just stretching open to break up the adhesions. And we asked them, we said, how'd it go? What did you think? How How did it work? And it was remarkable what these students found. I mean, like 65% improvement in arousal and orgasm, 75% improvement in pain for patients who had clitoral pain. Um, It was six women who had never orgasmed from clitoral stimulation were able to orgasm after the procedure. So it was like more than I had even expected. Um, And it was really eye-opening. And it's been so amazing because this article has been read thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And doctors are reaching out to me from all over the world saying, you know, hey, how do you do this? Can we learn how to do it too? I had a doctor from a big institution. This doctor has way more gray hair than I do and is a very (laughs) prominent person in the field of of vulvar uh, pathology. And he called me up yesterday while I'm making my kids dinner. And he said, can you teach me how to do this in the office? I'm really wanting to learn because I often go to the operating room. How cool that, you know, a a much senior doctor would, would call me to, to really help explain our techniques and, and things like that. So people are open, they're learning, they're saying, you're right, we never look at the clitoris, we never examine it. And so we've brought a lot of awareness uh, to that, which has been um, incredibly hopeful and exciting. That's amazing. That's uh, that's a pretty big, not only is that a pretty big discovery, but also the results are phenomenal. I'm assuming that you're probably going to continue looking more and more into that. And I'm hoping... And and you know what we have a, a a doctor in Chile who's looking at his his data from this and what I wanted to do is to spark other people to start looking and to start doing it themselves and so don't you know it can't just be my data I want other people's data I want other people to look at this and and to see is is it real am I crazy like is this really a thing and it's like I I can't tell you I just had a patient in my office last week and I said I said did it really help and she said oh my god like it was like night and day in terms of and in she didn't have a major adhesion. It was it was somewhat mild. But when the clitor when the clitoris tries to expand and engorge and get erect and it's stuck against the hood, you know, are you limiting how much pleasure you can have because of that? Are you how many women out there are saying, ooh, I don't like oral sex or I don't like when my partner touches me there. It irritates me. 
honestly, they never go to the doctor for that. They, you know, if anything, they go to the sex therapist or they get told that it's all in their head or that they're frigid or hysterical or whatever, or they need a vibrator. Have a glass of wine, relax. Have a glass of wine, right? But how many just have some, some smegma that's built under there that's irritating their clitoris. And that's what's so fascinating because nobody's looking. So in terms of the clitoris, what sort of symptoms do patients typically come to you with? Do you normally see them for more of like an orgasm type of issue or more like a pain kind of issue? All of the above, right? As a sexual medicine doctor and urologist, I do four things. I deal with issues of libido, arousal, orgasm, and pain. I do that in every gender. Uh, and so I take care of everybody for all of the, There's a lot of overlap with all of those things. And so I do really long visits and comprehensive visits with people to understand that biopsychosocial connection, to really break it down. You know, I think one of the most major discoveries and, and sort of um, paradigm shifting things in the past couple of years is what one of my mentor, Erwin Goldstein, came up with was the idea of sort of region-based assessment of sexual problems. And this is so good for a pain doctor, right? When you hear a story, you break it down of like, where is this stemming from? Is it in your brain? Is it in your spinal cord? Is it in your cauda equina? Is it in your pelvic floor? Is it in the tissue itself at the end organ? And sort of breaking it down into regions and really using um, nerve blocks and things like that that you do to sort of assess where the problem is. So if someone comes in with clitoral pain, right, you could say, okay, let's numb it topically and see, does all your pain go away? Well, maybe they have a clitoral problem, an end organ problem. What if their pain doesn't go away? Maybe it's a pudendal nerve problem. Maybe it's a pelvic nerve problem from the spine. Maybe it's a problem with their homunculus right in their brain or something like that. And so it really helps to guide your brain. And then kind of you start at the end organ and work your way backwards. You know, if that pudendal nerve block didn't work, what about that caudal block? What about that, you know, ganglion impar block? And so it's really detective work, which is so much fun, right? You do this all the time and it's so much fun. And to really just sit there with patients and say, you know, you're bothered by your low libido, like we have solutions and and, and you should be bothered. And here's, you know, how we're going to attack this hormonally. And here's how we're going to attack this non-hormonally. And I see a ton of people who have pain with sex and I'm one of the only doctors who they ever see that ask them about orgasm. And it, does anything feel good, right? Does anything work? And they're like, no one's ever asked me that before, right? And so that is, we, we focus on the pain, but we don't always focus on the pleasure, the goals, the quality of life. And that's kind of the stuff where I make sure I have yeah. time for, you know, to really go into. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, and I do like that about the detective work aspect of it is because it is more complicated because we don't know as much about it as, as we should, it does take, and I, and I often tell patients that I'm like, this might take some trial and error to like figure out what the source is. For, for me in terms of pain, but what their source is, is a superficial and then as start there and then work your way up to figure out what else it could be. Now, I want to ask you about surgery. So there are surgeries, you know, labioplasties, mesh sling procedures, things that have that are pretty common surgeries. But previously, I feel like that's not something where anyone really considered the possibility of clitoral damage or pain with orgasm or loss of ability to orgasm after that surgery. So is sort of the landscape on these surgeries changing the way they're done? Is anyone kind of paying more attention to preserving the nerves and the tissues than they did previously? Um, there is a lot of, you know, um, a lot of interest in this topic. And I wish there were more interest in this topic. And I hope, you know, uh, unfortunately, the interest in this topic has really come from um 
patient advocates who have been sort of screaming on the internet saying, what the hell? I had this surgery, no one told me, and now I can't do X, Y, and Z. I have chronic pain, I can't orgasm, I feel numb, um, you know, I feel dead inside, you know, all of these things. And that has led to some research, probably not enough. It's led to a lot of doctors shutting, you know, uh, dismissing these patient advocates to saying, you're, you know, this isn't possible, which has then led to a lot of anger and a lot of, um, a, a lot of, a lot of anger on all sides. And the answer is there are some people sort of in the middle who are really encouraging more research and really hoping that this change as this changes the way we do things. No, you know, nobody's saying you should never have any kind of surgery ever. The key here is that we need better informed consent. We need to understand how our patients experience pleasure to understand how our surgeries can impact their pleasure and be open to the fact that we don't know everything. We, you know, that, and that you, there is no such surgery that has no risk. Every surgery has risk. Not having surgery has risks depending on the issue. And so the answer is you have to be open to understanding that that there are some unknowns here and that you do take a risk. And so if you're going to have a cosmetic surgery, you have to know that you're going to, there's going to be risk. And so um, I think that's the issue. And again, just that article I reviewed just a couple weeks ago of just understanding the nerves to the vulva, to that vulvar vestibule is not really well. There's no articles on it. There are no papers. So for if you're having a labiaplasty, there are no good papers to really that really discuss sort of the nerve innervation to the vulvar vestibule in 2023 like it's fascinating right clearly that is an avenue of research that still needs exploring it definitely sounds like one of them um that's what one of my questions was what research is uh yet to be discovered or what research still needs to be done and where's where are the avenues for research going Sounds like you sort of answered some of that question already. We have tons. There is unlimited work to be done. There is unlimited, which is really fun for medical students because I get to tell them like, hey, I need you in this field because I need you coming up with ideas. I need you doing the research. I need you being champions for different subjects because, I, you know, the handful of us that do this work, we see patients all day, every day, and we don't have funding. We don't have time. We're not backed by right. billionaires. If any billionaires right. are listening, <laughs> I'm open. Uh, please, let's talk. Right. But I don't have a large research institute. The NIA is not paying for these large, well-done studies. And so the answer is you have a couple of people who have interest, but there's unlimited work to do and we need a lot of it. And so my job, the way I've sort of seen myself is like, I need to be this cheerleader going out and screaming from the rooftops to get people to notice us, to then have all these, these upcoming students and everything say, oh, we'd like to do that. This is interesting work. I want to do this, even though I'm going to be a pain doctor and I'm going to do this research. I'm going to be a, a GYN and do this research. I'm going to be a, a pathologist and do this research. We need everybody. And that's why we love um, the organization ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, because it is a bunch of nerds that all get together from every specialty, whether you're basic science or um, GYN or pain management or family practice or physical therapy, we all get together, we nerd out on women's sexual health in a very scientific way. And so that is the best organization ever because it's really like hopeful and exciting, but we have a thousand members. That's not that many members, right? Mm -hmm. We need more people to kind of do the work. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and it's it's you know it, it's sad when major organizations like the NIH um, or others or you know 
billionaires that want to fund things. A lot of things are funded as far as male sexual dysfunction or, you know, male-based problems, Viagra, big one, um, and not so much for women. So that's definitely something that needs to be addressed. In terms of, you mentioned medical students, how should medical school residency education, do you want to see that changing? Um, how should that sort of include education on the clitoris? Listen, it's challenging because there, you know, there's so much to know in medical school. I don't remember very important things that I learned in medical school, right? Yes. I don't remember, you know, um, uh, how to read an EKG. Like that <laughs> seems like that's more important than the anatomy of the clitoris. And yet I know the anatomy of the clitoris, but not how to read an EKG. And so it's very challenging for medical school education because you have to, like, you're not going to get to everything. And as I said, women's sexual health is always going to be the lowest thing on the totem pole that nobody wants to teach. And so, and if you have nobody at your institution who knows it, which we don't have many people at many institutions, you're, you're out of luck. And so I don't know what the answer is because I'm not suggesting that all, you know, every curriculum should have 10 hours on, you know, women's sexual health. So, and, and what does a one hour lecture do? Like you don't remember your one hour lecture on EKG reading and I don't remember it either. Right. I don't know the answer, but I do know there's hope, right? There's a group of Chicago medical students that basically got together and all seven schools in Chicago, and they started an organization and they said, we want to learn about female sexual medicine. And they started a board and they have a conference every year where they bring in the world's experts to like teach them. And we just had the third annual uh, version of it, which was amazing. And it's just replicating and growing and growing. And they're saying, we want to learn this. So on a Sunday morning, they had a hundred and 40 people log into a Zoom to learn about women's sexual health. So there's a lot of interest and excitement. I'm, I'm grateful for social media. I'm grateful for these students who can see the limitations of their own schools and do something about it. Not just sit there and complain and say, woe is us, we don't learn this, but they freaking do something about it. And that's the magic is the change makers, the people who realize that one person can change the whole world, that one project can change the whole future. And that, and I want to inspire them and they're inspiring me about how we can do more together and work collaboratively because I don't know everything about research and basic science. But now I've realized uh, because of my, you know, my social media presence and, and being in this organization that I have friends and I have friends who know a lot of things and they can want to work. And people are so kind with collaborative work and wanting to work together. So I am very hopeful, but not every vet student wants to know about this and is going to use this in their practice. So I don't know. No, I, I agree with you. And I actually... Uh, Dr. Patel and I talk about that all the time in terms of social media, podcasting, all of that being such a powerful tool for education, because I mean, even this podcast is offered for CME credit. So it's like, you know, th there's such a, because there's so many topics that are not covered in a traditional conference or covered in, you know, a, a lecture in medical school or a lecture in residency. And there are so many resources from professionals, healthcare professionals that are out there. It's just not something that you easily see, but it has been changing with the presence of podcasting and social media. I think it has been really excellent for, for trainees to be able to learn from that avenue. It's good, but there is some element of overload, right? Is, is, is there's actually unlimited information. There's unlimited free information out there, right? You've got Google can go get you to crazy places. And so you have to have interest. You have to have inspiration. You have to want to spend the time to do it. Um, and, and there is, there is limited time. And that's what I struggle with is there is, there is so much work to do. 
And it is very overwhelming because there's so much we don't know. There's so much left to learn and um, there's limited time. I agree. Any last words of advice for our listeners on, you know, anything, how they should advocate for themselves? Any last words of advice? I think the best words I can give you is that pelvic pain is not a one size fits all, nor is it a uh, one doctor is going to fix all of your problems. You have to work in a collaborative team. And that's often going to look like somebody like me, a sexual medicine uh, physician, somebody like Dr. Kerpaker, who uh, does pain management. It's going to be somebody like a mental health professional, as well as physical therapists. Um, We have to get different people involved to really understand what's going on with you. So while it seems frustrating, the best is to think of yourself like a fine race car and you need a pit crew and you need a pit crew coming to kind of tune you up and you can't go to the Honda dealership as much (laughs) as you want to. You can't, you need the fancy pit crew that comes in that is very specialized to help you. And sometimes that means you have to travel. And sometimes that means you have to know your history and advocate for yourself. And you have to kick and scream that medicine is broken and be real pissed off and angry, but you have to use that anger for advocacy and change and good. You have to use that anger to say, what are we going to do about it? And there are amazing patient advocacy organizations. I'm involved with one called Tight Lipped, which uh, you should totally get involved with them too. They're amazing. They're basically patient advocates who are trying to get um, uh, medical residencies changed in terms of how they understand vulvovaginal pain conditions. And it's all patient led. So use your anger for good. Um, and any way we can help you do that, please let us know. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rubin. This has been a fantastic discussion. Well, thank you so much for having me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the docs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.